coming up. Kevin Powell, he's an activist, a poet, a former star of the real world, and now he has a memoir, The Education of Kevin Powell. Join us for a conversation with him next on the Wall Street Journal Arts and Media Podcast. Updates on arts and entertainment, interviews with celebrities and marquee guests. This is WSJ Speakeasy. Hey, this is Christopher John Farley, a senior editor at the Wall Street Journal. I'm talking today with Kevin Powell. He's the author of a new memoir, The Education of Kevin Powell, A Boy's Journey Into Manhood. Kevin, thanks for talking to the Wall Street Journal. Oh, it's an honor. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. So you published 11 books. What makes this 12th one special? Wow, that's a great question. You know, I've been saying to folks, this is uh, the hardest thing I've ever written in my life uh, by far. You know, no book is easy, as you well know, as an author yourself. But this one being a memoir and being very personal and literally going from age three to my late 40s, where I'm at now, I cover a lot of territory uh, emotionally, uh, spiritually, and time-wise. Um, and it's something that I've been thinking about for 20 years, you know, uh, going back to the 90s when we were uh, coming up as young writers in the scene. But I just know that if I would have written a book back then with some, some Gen X who were getting book deals and memoirs, it would have been a very different and very angry kind of book. I mean, it's really about uh, healing and about um, growing as a human being and, 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 and being honest. You know, I felt that if I was going to write a memoir, the books that I've been affected by, Malcolm X's autobiography, uh, Frank McCourt's Angela's Ashes, uh, my Angela's autobiography series, um, you know, I wanted something that, that spoke uh, in that way, very transparently. So that's why I decided. I feel it's the, the most important thing I've ever written in my life, uh, regardless of uh, how people respond to it. I just want uh, folks to, to, to see that there's truth here and that that that, that um, it's soul-bearing, and hopefully it'll help someone. Yeah, the thing is, you know, as a novelist, when I write a novel, if things get painful, there's an awareness that I'm just making stuff up. These are characters. This isn't really me. With you, when you're writing a memoir that really goes deep into your family history, you are putting yourself on display. There's this one passage in your book where you talk about your mother, and you, you, you in, in the chapter is called My Mother Part Two, and you write that, my mother beat me for as long as I can remember. She used her hands, one of my belts, or a switch, a strong, flexible type of wood yanked from bushes in our hood. So you write about you know, the way your mother used to beat you, but you, you also dedicate this book to her. Why is that? Because love is complicated. <laughs> love is very complicated. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for my mother. And I think that, um, you know, it's not an either-or for me. You know, I'm very clear, like I said in the dedication, my mother's the first leader and teacher that I ever met. You know, you've read the book, people are reading the book, they'll see that she's in the intro of the book, and the last line of the book is in reference to my mother. So she's the through line through all of this. And it's interesting you made the point about um, fiction and nonfiction. I actually, um, as, a, as a kid in high school, I actually wanted to be a fiction writer before anything else. It never quite transpired that way. Uh, but uh, I, I fell in love with Charles Dickens' work, for example, you know, and Chaucer, uh, people like that, and, and, you know, just creating characters. And so actually when I was thinking about the first half of the book is intensely uh, influenced by, by those coming kind of coming of age stories. And, you know, for me, it was important to detail what happened, but also to put in context where my mother came from, the American South, and how she was treated because of her race and her gender 
and her class background and, and the brutality that she experienced. And the point that I hope people are getting, which I think was laid out in uh, Frank McCord and Angela's Ashes as well, is that, you know, there are environmental circumstances that create the kind of behavior that we see. And until you make a conscious decision, as I grapple with, as you know, throughout the book, but my own issues around violence, uh, it's never going to end. And, and so I feel like you can't avoid it. You have to talk about it. But it doesn't mean that you, you know, uh, uh, um, have any harsh feelings about it. I've forgiven my mother, my father, all those things. I couldn't have uh, written this book if there wasn't a level of love and forgiveness there. Now, of course, Frank McCord, in his great memoir, Angela's Ashes, he wrote about growing up in Limerick, Ireland, and yes. wrote about the rain there, and wrote about how that influenced him as a kid growing up and later helped shape him into the teacher he became and the writer he became. You write about Jersey City, New Jersey, where you were born and raised, and you write in the book that I was born a year after Malcolm was blown away, two years before a rifle stifled MLK, and five years before Tupac would stop flipping the bird onto the stage. I'm the only child of a young, single, Geechee woman who greyhounded it from a shotgun shack to a northern tenement. And there's a, there's a lot of detail about the roaches, the rats, the cranky radiator, the paint chips, the food stamps, the government cheese, the things that were parts of your childhood. Yeah. So looking back, what was the hardest? What was the most difficult obstacle you had to overcome? You know, it, it was feeling stuck, feeling like I would never get out of it. You know, that, that poverty was just my destiny and there was, there was the only place um, it, it's crazy to me now when I think about it because I, as I say toward the end of, at the end of the book that I've been to pretty much the entire country, all 50 states, I've been to five or seven continents. But I didn't get on a plane until I was 24 years old. You know, I didn't know that there was a world beyond where I came from, and that's what poverty does to you. You, you get stuck in your environment. It, it's, it's like now as a community organizer here in New York, I meet young people who've never left, you know, Brooklyn, or people in Harlem who've never been out of South of Harlem, and folks in New York City, you know, who've never been across the river to Jersey. You know, that was the hardest thing. I, you know, you deal with the rats, you deal with the roaches, you deal with the hunger, you know. Uh, you deal with all the moving around becomes normal in your life, you know. I dealt with the act. My father abandoning me, but I just felt like I was doomed. And the one thing that saved my life, life as I talk about, is, is my mother taking me to that library, uh, teaching me uh, the importance of learning and me falling in love with books. That was my escape. That's how my imagination got fed. I want to talk about that. Of course, people know that you're a poet, that you're a writer, that you are you know, one of the um, really first big, famous hip-hop writers when you were uh, a senior writer for Vibe magazine. And, of course, you also appeared on The Real World. But you're also in this book, Write About, as you just mentioned, how you discovered really a love of literature in the Greenville Public Library. And some of this reminded me of Richard Wright talking about the fact that he also sort of discovered books in a library and had to get a, a white man to get the books out for him because the library was That's segregated right. and wouldn't give library cards to black kids. Uh, tell right. me a bit about the Greenville Public Library and what you got out of that and discovering books later on like the autobiography of Malcolm X. Oh my gosh, it was it was incredible, you know, and that's why intentionally when I write that part of the memoir, I describe how my mother and I walked, you know, through this 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 rundown community and there's this food and you know garbage everywhere and there's people on the corner and you know, but it's almost like you know when we crossed into that that library, this whole world opened up for me. I was eight years old, 
And my mother, uh, my mother doesn't read books. She reads the Bible, but she reads the local newspaper. She's always been a news person, you know. And she went to her part of the library, the adult section, and she allowed me to roam. And the first books I discovered, which is why I'm a huge sports fan to this day, are, were sports books. And I got lost in the history of, of sports, especially my, my, my beloved New York Yankees, reading about Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and all those and Dimaggio and all those people. That was, that was it for me, you know. And, 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 you know, within a couple of years, I was just reading different things about meteorology or magic. And you know, at one point, I wanted to be a magician as a kid. You know how our, our minds go in different places. When I discovered Ernest Hemingway's uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls at age 11 or 12, and took that book home and, and struggled through as much as a bit as I could understand, but it just was lost in the words that I was digesting. And then when I went back to the library and looked up his uh, life in an encyclopedia, and, and at that time I couldn't process that he had committed suicide. What I was processing is this man had lived and he was fishing in Cuba and, and doing and bullfights in Spain. I remember saying to myself, if that's what a writer does, then I want to be a writer. And, and from that point forward, as I described, I fell in love with Shakespeare. I fell in love with Voltaire, with Chaucer, with Keats, with Dickinson. Oh, my God. You know, it was anything I could get in my hand. Edgar Allan Poe, I worshipped. Uh, I, I couldn't believe this one wrote short stories the way he did. And it wasn't actually until I got to college that I discovered uh, African-American and, and West Indian writers and African writers, writers who came from the same spaces, that I did, and that transformed me in a totally different way when I read about the negritude writers from the Caribbean or read about Langston Hughes or, you know, as you referenced Richard Wright when I first read Black Boy. And so it was the the, the early stuff made me uh, have an imagination, and then when I discovered writers who came from my world who looked like me, that's when I knew I could actually do it because I saw myself. Okay, we're talking to Kevin Powell about his new memoir, The Education of Kevin Powell, and of course there's an inspirational quality to this book when you talk about your love of literature, of moving beyond you know, your tough roots in Jersey City, New Jersey. But there's also a disturbing side to some of your story, too. You talk about the violence that runs through your life, you know, from your, yeah. your mother beating you to you yourself acting out some of these experiences throughout your life, you know, with you know, an incident in college where you um, uh, uh, pulled out a knife in a confrontation with a, a female classmate to yeah. you talk about sh- openly about shoving a girlfriend and... and and all of that, and you, you confronted some of this in your own writing when you wrote a, a story called The Sexist in Me for yeah. Essence in 1992. Um, tell me a bit about your need to confront some of the own violence and misogyny that runs through your life and how you went about doing so. Well, that's a great question. One, I don't feel that you should write a, a memoir, an autobiography, if you're not being completely honest, you know. And, and people who have followed my writings through the years know, as you referenced, the sexist in the article was in 1992. In essence, I wrote a piece for Ms. Magazine around 2000 called um, Confessions of a Misogynist. Um, and I've talked about this in different forms, you know. And I, I can't take credit for it. it. I have to give credit to people like Bell Hooks and Eve Ensler and Gloria Steinem and Archer Lord, uh, people that I've, I've met or interviewed at different points, you know, um, in my lifetime as a, as a young man coming of age. And I was challenged, you know, um, that you can't just write about race as a person of color. You've got to talk about all forms of oppression, discrimination. That certainly includes uh, violence. And, and I had to confront the fact that pain and trauma is very real in many of our lives, uh, regardless of our background. Because I've worked with people of all different backgrounds where you've seen, I've seen similar kind of behavior. Some of it's been physical violence, some of it's been verbal, emotional violence. But violence, as I always say, is violence no matter what form it is. And it, it's been a journey. Therapy, years of therapy, writing is therapy. Uh, people who know me know that I'm also an activist and organizer. And so what began in my life in college 
as work around race and racism, you know, transitioned and to include uh, work around uh, uh, domestic violence prevention because of my own experiences. Uh, I just wrote a blog, you know, just in the last uh, couple of days called Why We Need a Men's Movement in This Country for CNN.com that talks about this and some of the work I've done with young men around the country now that I'm the older man, you know, but it's not easy, you know, and it was hard writing the book because it's hard. it was hard reliving all those different things, not only the violence against myself, but the violence that I uh, experienced. But I also thought about the fact that we live in a country where violence has become so normalized. Mass shootings happen almost every month now. It feels like tragically. You know, when I ran the New York City Marathon for the second time just a couple of days ago, my mind kept thinking about the Boston Marathon and the bombing that happened there that took lives. And, you know, I guess what I'm ultimately saying in this book is, you know, you know what, we have to confront who we are all the hurt, all the pain out there, you know, in spite of what our careers may be, because we, we've got to move this world and this country toward real peace and real love on a consistent basis. It's not going to happen if we're not brutally honest about who we are and where we come from. Okay, we're going to pause for a second. I'll be right back with Kevin Powell, the author of the new memoir, The Education of Kevin Powell. They're here. All new podcasts from the Wall Street Journal, including What's News? Top stories without the noise. Where does the presidential campaign go from here? Check back for daily updates from the Wall Street Journal. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, updates on arts and entertainment, interviews with celebrities and marquee guests. This is WSJ Speakeasy. Hey, this is Christopher John Farley, a senior editor at the Wall Street Journal. I'm talking to author, activist, reality star, poet, Kevin Powell. He has a new memoir out called The Education of Kevin Powell. Okay, in this book, you also deal with something that a lot of people know you from, the real world. You were in the, the first season of The Real World. You were part of the original cast. Tell me, when you look back on it, when you were thinking about the real world in 1992, what kind of ground did that show break when it comes to reality TV? Did you help make Kim Kardashian possible? <laughs> Is that your fault? Can we blame you for that? Well, I don't have her money, so I don't want to take credit for that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's profound to me because when you look at the first season, and folks who know the history of reality television know that there was something on PBS, I believe, in 1973, called an American family with the loud family. And, and that was really the first, first thing. And from what I understand, the producers of the uh, real world uh, in partnership with MTV borrowed that idea. They threw in the idea of documentary filmmaking and also obviously, obviously soap operas. But when I was um, picked for the show, when I was interviewed for the show, you know, my understanding was like, you know, we're just going to see what happens. You know, MTV was at the cutting edge at that point in, in terms of, of television for our, for our generation, for young people. And I just thought to myself, well, if I get picked for this show, because I'm a writer, I had already been freelance writing for a good four or five years, and I was clear that I was, that's my path. I said, I maybe I can get some speaking gigs out of it. I had no idea, no idea that, you know, 22 decades later, this thing would become this, this massive phenomenon where I meet people all the time and say, I'm trying to get on a reality TV show, like that's their ticket to fame. We weren't really thinking like that. We got paid, as I said in the book, maybe $2,500, $2,600 in total. But... It struck me when we finished the show. Uh, well, hold, hold up, hold up. You got paid $2,600 in total for the first season of The Real World. That's correct. We, you and I have made more than that writing for, for Pulp Magazine. Absolutely correct. Wow. Yeah. I mean, uh, 
Do you get residuals? I mean, do they still do you still get a check now and again for appearing in there? From- Absolutely not. And in fact, the contract, which I didn't understand at the time because I was so naive, said that we were signing away the rights to these images that they're taking for these three months uh, in perpetuity throughout the universe. And I had no idea what that meant. And I said, okay, okay, perpetuity in the universe, which means they probably can show this thing on Mars. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, do, do they at least let you sort of stay at that house sometimes, you know, you know no, for an overnight or something? I walked by and I was like, yep, I used to live there at Corner Broadway and Prince Street for a short <laughs> moment in time. It felt like we had won a game show. You know what I mean? That's what I remember thinking to myself. I felt like I won a game show. And now the game show's over, and you're going back to your life. And my life was a roommate up in uptown Manhattan in Harlem. That was it. And I was back to, you know, hustling, as you know, as a fellow journalist, uh, to, to make a living. That was it. Now, I'm wondering how that felt, because you want to show a movie like The Truman Show, which, of course, is about a guy who's being filmed, who doesn't know he's being filmed for a reality show, and they kind of invent a character for him, for the masses. I mean, did it feel like that was really you on screen, or did it feel like someone had edited a character that looked like you? It's really interesting. It was a surreal, out-of-body experience, you know, because, again, what people need to understand, this is going on in the early 90s. It was the same year that the uh, L.A. riots happened, the L.A. Rebellion happened in April of 92, and so we're taping all this stuff, and people would see us out on the streets, and they didn't know what was going on at the time. It's just like, oh, you know, who are those young people, you know, with cameras and stuff like that? Or, you know, are you somebody? We're like, no, we're just doing a little show, MTV show. It wasn't until it hit. And it really, really hit me was when we went to the Video Music Awards. And 92 was the year that Red Hot Chili Peppers were huge. Nirvana was huge. Uh, Howard Stern had exploded as a, as, a, as a media personality. And the seven of us, you know, showed up at the Video Music Awards in L.A., and the young people screamed for us as if we were the Beatles. And it was shocking to me. I was like, this is crazy. You know, we're just, and people would say stuff to us like, you know, I like your character. And you're like, well, my character is actually me. And what I remember thinking to myself, it's like, I don't want to be like the monkeys. I don't want to be like, you know, the Brady Bunch or, or, or you know, Gilligan's Island, those characters where that's all they're known for. And I was really thankful that was also the year that Quincy Jones started by magazine. And I was actually writing the first cover story during the time we were taping the show. And so I always knew that I was a writer, but it was definitely bizarre. But what was more bizarre was after our show ended, people would see me in the streets and they would scream out, hey, Bill Bellamy, thinking I was Bill Bellamy from MTV Jam. (laughs) (laughs) Now, um, you mentioned Vibe Magazine. Of course, you were a pioneering, still are, um, hip-hop writer, and you wrote some of the early big features on Tupac Shakur, including the big jailhouse interview he gave you in 1994 when he was in Rikers Island on a sexual assault charge. You recently released some audio from that interview. Why did you do that, and and what was in it that sort of is interesting to people today? Well, I did it because we have a chapter, I have a chapter in the memoir uh, called uh, Tupac Shakur, uh, Vibe and Tupac Shakur, you know, and there was no way I could write the memoir without talking about the five years and all those those interviews you're referencing. I mean, those, uh, little did I know when we started the process, you know, I was just interested in Tupac because of who he was, his political background, because I come from an actor's background through to my school years and at Rutgers University. I felt like he was speaking to young people in a certain kind of way, and I thought it was interesting. But by the time we started profiling him, he grew into this, this iconic figure, and I literally ended up documenting the last two and a half, three years of his life, you know, for Vibe Magazine and then uh, the cover story for Rolling Stone when he was dead. I was actually in Vegas when they announced his death. 
And so I felt compelled, you know, now with this memoir coming out and the next book I'm doing is actually going to be the buy for Tupac Shakur in a few years. Um, I felt like I needed to share something, you know, because I've been sitting on these, these interviews for all these years. People have asked me over and over again. It really isn't a month that goes by that someone doesn't ask me a question about Tupac Shakur, which is really uh, crazy to me, you know. And for years I avoided, you know, I'm like, I don't want to be bothered with it. And, and, and I, You know, it's important to share this stuff. And so it's only three, three or four minutes, and some things are bleeped out of it because there's still some sensitive stuff that Tupac says, but I... I just wanted to share it, and, and, you know, it's been incredible, the, the electric response just to, the, to three minutes of Tupac talking. You realize folks don't really hear these things a lot. I find it fascinating that at the time, a lot of commentators thought that some of these hip-hop figures would be passing trends, that there'd be fads, but we've seen that there's an intense interest in nostalgia from this period. I mean, and even before and after, you think of, the success of the w, uh, the NWA movie Straight Outta Compton. People just That's eat right. that stuff up. They now feel like it's part of their personal pop culture history. Now, when, when, when you were talking to Tupac, I'm wondering, did you think then that you know, this guy's doomed, he's heading in the wrong direction, something bad is going to happen, or was that not part of your awareness at the time? Well, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. One of the things I said in the very first Tupac article was that he was our James Dean. He was hip-hop's James Dean. And we know that James Dean died tragically at age 24, only made three movies, but, you know, became this figure larger than life after death. And I had no idea that Pac wasn't going to make it past 25, you know, the age that he was killed in uh, in 96. But I did feel that he knew something about his life was not going to be long because he said to me, I want you to be Alex Haley to my Malcolm X. And I remember thinking to myself, well, what if I want to be Malcolm X? But his point was please document this and please, you know, um, you know, tell the truth. And it, it's really interesting because I do think some people are on, are in this universe for a short period of time and, and, and they're here to make their mark and they move on. And it's been striking to me uh, as I've traveled around the world, around this country. I mean, young people of all different backgrounds who were either not born when Tupac was alive or were babies who have said to me, he is the most important person to me in my life other than my family. I've heard that over and over again from kids from all different races, young people, all different backgrounds. So there's something about his honesty, his vulnerability, even with all his contradictions, that really touches a chord with people. Okay, at the end of the book, you talk about uh, going to visit your father's grave. And you never really knew your father. You met him sporadically when you were a kid. Um, Then he disappeared from your life. Uh, tell me why you decided to sort of end the book with that and what kind of an emotional experience that was actually locating his grave and seeing it again. Wow. Well, you know, um, without going into too much about that, the whole chapter is called Finding My Father. Uh, the chapter before, you know, I had gone to Africa for the first time, finally. It took me a long time to finally get there, but I was glad to, to go home. And, and anyone who is, you know, Jewish knows how important it is to go to Israel. If you're Italian, to go to Italy. I, I, you know, I just I just needed to go where my ancestors came from, you know. And uh, and finding the DNA from my mother's side and finding out where they were exactly from in, in, in Africa, um, I realized I knew nothing about my father. And it had been a recurring theme throughout my life, you know, from the time he uh, abandoned us completely at eight, when I was eight years old. You know, I've had breakdowns. I've talked about him. There have been certain songs that have resonated with me because they referenced uh, the absent father. And, and I felt like I needed to learn that side. And uh, just where social media comes in, as I talk about in that chapter, 
a genealogist reached out to me I had never met before. She said, you know, look, I'm I'm the product as a woman. She said, I'm I'm black, I'm white, I'm Native American, I'm all these different things. I grew up in foster care, and I because I didn't know who I was, I decided to become a genealogist. And she said, I follow your work, and if you ever need anything, you know, I would like to help you. And that's how it happened. It was a, a two-year process of going back and forth. And when I found the information, I was just, I was, I was stunned, you know. And um, I decided, you know, to just be bold about it and just show up. If you gangsters, we say, I didn't even tell those folks I was coming. I just had a list of names and numbers, and I, and I got down there to South Carolina. And, and as you said, you know, I found out the fate of my father, you know, which I describe in the book. You know, um, and I made peace with it as best I could. But what was deep to me was being welcomed by his family members, you know, as if I was a long lost nephew or son or brother. And it was people who were complete strangers to me. It was, it was, it was, I can't even describe it. I'm still processing it because it's something that you just don't uh, deal with in one moment. It's something that you think about. I think about if they're going to read this book, to be honest with you. You know, I think about all of that. Well, we've been talking to Kevin Powell. The name of the book is The Education of Kevin Powell, A Boy's Journey into Manhood. Kevin, thanks for talking to The Wall Street Journal. Thank you so much for the opportunity. You've been listening to our conversation with Kevin Powell, the author of The Education of Kevin Powell, A Boy's Journey into Manhood. Thanks for listening. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously.